Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, as we uh, conclude our series through the book of Colossians, that we've titled Jesus First Place in Everything. This will be the 14th message in our series. Took a couple weeks off for uh, around Easter time. Here we are, Colossians chapter 4, as we bring Paul's letter to, the, to a close. And I trust it was a benefit to you. I'm, uh, I'm partly saddened we're, we're leaving the book of Colossians. It was used so mightily in my own life. But I look forward to, uh, here in a couple weeks, uh, Pastor Matt and Pastor Kyle have the preaching responsibilities the next two Sundays. And then we're going to pick it up the Sunday after that, three weeks from today, um, on a series uh, through the book of the Twelve. Uh, maybe better known to you as the Minor Prophets, uh, but the book of the Twelve is we do one message on each of the Minor Prophets. Really looking forward to that as well. And, uh, and so as we, as we get to leave this book, we get to jump into a whole other section of God's Word and trust he'll continue to use his Word in our lives. Colossians chapter 4. And we're going to begin in verse 7 and read through the last verse of the chapter. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, where he says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, uh, Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea in Hierapolis. Verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, as we look at this passage and to summarize the words of John MacArthur where he calls this a a verbal uh, a verbal family picture, or f- a verbal family photo of some of the unsung heroes of the faith. I wonder for you and for me, how will, how will our Christian ministry be described in God's family photo? So just the other day I got a text from my aunt of, a, of an old family photo from a generation ago. And, and, you know, if you've ever gone through old photos with your mom or dad or your grandma or grandpa and there's a group photo of the family, they go one by one and they tell... You know, how each one was, what they were like, what they did for a living, and, and uh, maybe the, the pros and cons. You know, maybe there's some eye rolls when you get to certain family members. Um, maybe there's some, just some relief, just some dearness, some love, and some tenderness. 
Well, I wonder, when, when we go through the family photo of God's family, and we're describing the Christian ministry that each of us who are Christians are involved in, what will be said about your Christian ministry? We don't get a lot of information about these guys, but Paul, this is similar to Romans chapter 16, he gives another big list. He's, he's actually constantly, at the end of his letters, giving lists of people who served alongside him. And they were very often really unknown and unsung, but yet they were the heroes of the faith. And that's the Christian ministry and, and really the church flies on the wings of those who are unsung, unnamed, and unassuming and Paul knew the importance of having fellow laborers because Christian ministry isn't just about one man. It's not a one man's ministry. It's not one person. It's not about one leader or one preacher or one pastor. It's about those coming together to labor together for the gospel. And this is, illustrates perfectly what we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 where it says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's Christian ministry. That's Christian ministry. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in the ministry. And so even from this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it's not necessarily the more the merrier, it's the more the stronger. Uh, the more people that get involved, the more of those unsung, unnoticed, unassuming people that get involved in the work of the ministry, that's what strengthens the church. You can use this, uh, you can use this illustration. Uh, one strand of, of, of hair can break apart with about three ounces of uh, pull force. But a whole head of hair can support 12 metric tons. That's two elephants. And if you're in here and you look in the mirror and you say, I don't think my hair can do that, then look at your neighbors. Uh, some, some people's hair can hold more elephants than others. But nonetheless, a full head of hair, when taken all together and put together, can hold the weight of two elephants. That's incredible. When you look at just one strand, we see how easy it snaps. But when you get the whole thing together, you see how much weight it could bear. And that's Christian ministry. You're going to hear me say that phrase a lot today. That's Christian ministry. All of us together, weak and breakable on our own. When we come together, there's strength. And when we withstand all the weight that comes with living this Christian life. We need one another. And that's what Paul did. Paul surrounded himself with people that made him a better leader. So Paul understood really one of, the, one of the key elements of leadership is not doing everything yourself. One of the key elements of leadership is not being a, a do-it-all or being, quote-unquote, the full package. Part of being a good leader is placing people around you that can do things better than you. That's what Paul did. And so Paul introduces us to eight men who are examples to us of Christian ministry. And we're going to look at these first eight guys listened. 
And I know that's, uh, that can seem like a lot, but we're going to go through and we're going to ask who they are and how they are examples to us of Christian ministry. So let's jump in on the first one. The first one is Tychicus. And when I think of Tychicus, I think of the word consistent. Consistent. Now, Tychicus was a faithful servant of the Lord from Asia. Uh, he was Paul's associate, and he most likely was saved. Uh, he, we learned he was uh, most likely he was saved early on in Paul's ministry. But if you go through scripture, we're not going to take time to go everywhere, but Paul, he was sent by Paul to Ephesus to minister there at one point. Uh, when he writes to Titus, Tychicus was one of the guys being considered to go and take Titus's ministry in Crete. Remember, Titus was in Crete. And here, if we notice here in verse 7, Tychicus is being sent to Colossae to fill in the Colossian church on what Paul is doing. Now think about that. He was sent to Ephesus for an unknown ministry uh, uh, that we read about in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. He was being considered to be, uh, to be the one sent to Crete to relieve Titus of his duties in Titus chapter 3. And now he's being sent to Colossae to tell the people about Paul's activities and to encourage the people. And you kind of get the sense that this guy was just kind of, whatever you need, I'll do it. And look how he's described even. He's described as a, a beloved brother. He was dear to Paul. They were spiritually related and there was a spiritual bond. He was a faithful minister. He was consistent. He was reliable to Christ. He was reliable to Paul and to the church. He was a guy you could always count on. He was uh, also described here as a, a fellow bondservant in the Lord. So Paul is saying, you know, a fellow bondservant. Paul is saying he served with us. He served with us. He wasn't a rogue servant. He wasn't a solo servant. He wasn't an isolated servant that just said, just leave me alone and let me, let me get on with my life. He worked for Christ with others. And again, you just get this sense that this guy could be given any task and he would do it wholeheartedly. You could trust him with the big and the small. I mean, for Crete, he'd be going, if he relieved Titus of his duties there, he most likely would have been taken over some sort of leadership position in the church, some sort of oversight. Or even the small things, like just simply carrying a letter to the church and saying, hey, let me tell you how Paul is doing, and how can I be an encouragement to you? Big or small, Tychicus was there. He was consistent. Consistent in his character, consistent in his availability, consistent in his reliability, consistent in his work ethic, Tychicus was there. And I hope you see how this can be an example to us as we engage in Christian ministry. We need to be, we need to be consistently reliable, ready to serve in whatever capacity God calls us to. Whether God calls us to travel... Or whether God just calls us to simply carry a message and be an encouragement. God uses people like Tychicus in the church. Someone who is constant and reliable and trustworthy. Which begs the question right off the start here. Are you currently serving? If you're a member here, especially addressing you, are you currently serving in this church? From greeters at the door to nursery workers to childcare workers to teachers to audio and sound booth, uh, the sound booth and the and the 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 electronic stuff, the technical side of stuff back there. You can tell that's where I belong. Uh, uh, you know, f- from all those things, all across the board, 
We need servants like Tychicus who said, give me a job, I'll do it. We need it. And if you are serving, if you, you are serving in a ministry here, the question for you is, are you consistent? Not are you doing it every week, but are you reliable? Are you trustworthy? Are you consistent in what you commit to do in fulfilling that? Let's move on to the second guy as we move quickly through all of these. Number two, Onesimus. And when I think of Onesimus, I think of the word change. We talked a little bit about uh, Onesimus last week. Onesimus, if you remember, um, he was actually being sent with the letter. So he was traveling with Tychicus back to Colossae, which was his hometown. Onesimus' hometown. Now, if you remember, Onesimus is the slave of Philemon. Philemon is a member of the church, maybe even an elder or a deacon at the church in Colossae. Now, even when, when you read the letter of Philippians, and we're going we're gonna to touch on this here in just a moment, but it seems like Onesimus, he's a runaway slave, which, is, which was illegal in those days to run away from your master. He was a runaway the slave, but we also get the sense that he probably stole some stuff on his way out. Now, in God's providence, Onesimus, as he runs from Philemon, he ends up in Rome, and he happens to encounter this guy named Paul, who was in a Roman prison. There might have been some connection there. He found a way to him. However, God worked it out. But by God's grace, Onesimus, this runaway slave, is born again. And Paul is going to send Onesimus back to the Colossian church and back to Philemon, which is a potentially dangerous situation. Because for a runaway slave, the punishment could be very severe. But Onesimus was willing even to risk that punishment and return to his master because he was a changed man. And so Paul pleads with Philemon to receive back Onesimus. And this is what we get in Philemon chapter 1, the only chapter, verses 15 through 18. Where Paul says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. That you might have him back forever. Not as a slave, but more than a slave or a bondservant. As a beloved brother. Notice what Paul says, especially to me, but how much more, however, however dear he is to me, he should be much more dear to you. That's what he's saying, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And then this is where we get the idea he probably stole some things. Paul says, if he has wronged you at all or he owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul is exhorting the church to welcome this born-again slave, which um, would have been, you know, bottom of the rung as far, as far as society goes. And he's saying, welcome this guy as this runaway, rebellious, thieving slave, and welcome him as you would welcome me if I were to walk through your doors. Onesimus experienced a total change. He had a sinful past. He had a sinful past, but when God used Paul to show him the glory of the gospel, when, Paul, when God used Paul to show him the glory of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was changed forever. He was a walking testimony of a verse you probably know, 2 Corinthians 5.21, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. They might be asking, what, how is Onesimus an example to us of Christian ministry? 
Like, it's great that he experienced life change, but what is it about this and Christian ministry? How do these two come together? Well, I think it's first a reminder to us that Christianity begins with a change, a new birth. Christianity begins by believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose, rose again. Christianity begins with a change. You repent away from yourself and your works and your sin and you turn to Christ. That's where Christianity starts. But it's also a reminder of what Christian ministry is all about. That's what Onesimus is when we talk about change. It's the forgiveness of God. At the root of all Christian ministry. And remember, Paul, Paul in the book of Philemon would call Onesimus useful to him. At the root of it all is the forgiveness of God, which should lead to praise. All of this is about praise to God. So we're not just simply fulfilling a task. We're, we're praising God all the way through. That in our Christian ministry, we should, we should see the, the evidence of the gospel. Because a saved person is a changed person. And that's, that's, what give, that's why we give praise to God. Ephesians 1 talks about God saving us through the praise of his glorious grace. We should be able to look at each other and see each other grow in Christ. And that's what gives us kind of the fuel for ministry, seeing God work. Onesimus reminds us what it is that motivates our service. What motivates a nursery worker? What motivates a greeter? What motivates guys working in the sound booth? What motivates teachers? What motivates your pastors? What should it be? What should motivate the deacons and anybody else who serves in the church? It should be the forgiveness and the grace of God. That's our motivation. That's our goal. That's why we labor. Labor. I can sacrifice and labor now because I've been forgiven, and it's all because of him. Let's move on to the third guy. His name's Aristarchus. When I think of him, I think of courage. I'll explain why. Aristarchus was from Thessalonica and most likely became a believer in Acts chapter 17 while Paul was there. Now, he joined Paul's ministry and um, he encountered several trials and tribulations and sufferings as he went along. So, for example, remember, the, remember uh, when Paul was in Ephesus? Uh, during Paul's ministry there, there was an idol-making idol silversmith named Demetrius. But if you remember, Paul is having such a successful ministry there that people are turning away from their god uh, named Artemis. And so they're no longer buying all of these idols that he's making. And so he stirs up the inhabitants of the city to start a riot because Paul turned away the people from that god. And so he told the people, hey, this guy is, is deposing the magnificence of our god. And so here's what happens next. It's going to be on the screen in Acts chapter 19. Notice these words, when they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out. This is the whole crowd, the whole city. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them who? Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Now I don't know what your thoughts come to this. When you see the word dragged, I think it means literally that. Aristarchus traveling with Paul, and Paul, remember, was outside of the theater, and he wanted to go in, but the disciples kept him from going in. But Aristarchus is taking the full, the, I mean, the, the full fury of the people. He was dragged in there, probably beat up along the way, and he's there and in there. 
But the fun didn't stop there for Aristarchus. As a matter of fact, later in Acts, we read this. This was when Paul was in prison going to Rome. It says, In embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by none other but Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Does anybody remember what happened after they got on this ship? A big storm came. There was this awful shipwreck. God spared them all. So we have the riot in Ephesus. We have the shipwreck in Acts chapter 27. And then here in the book of Ephesians, how does does Paul describe him in verse 10? He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. We don't know exactly when he was in prison. This guy went to prison for the gospel. That's why I think of courage when I think of this guy. You ever anybody you think through and you just think, man, you think courage, you think boldness? That's Aristarchus. We get to heaven, we're going to meet him, and you're going to remember my sermon, and you're going to say, I think of courage when I think of you, right? You're going to remember that? Okay, when you meet him, you remember courage. Uh, and and uh, courage, because ministry costs. God does not promise to protect our time, our money, our resources, or even our lives as Christians. As a matter of fact, he promises just the opposite, doesn't he? doesn't necessarily promise we'll lose all those things, but he calls us in Matthew chapter 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why would we need courage? Why would we need courage in Christian ministry? It's because Christian, Christian ministry isn't a hobby or a club membership. The biblical picture of Christian ministry is sacrificial, uncomfortable, world-forsaking service and work if you don't have courage i think on the flip side of that coin of courage the opposite of courage is either fear self-service or apathy like who cares so we need courage to be willing to let go of our time and our resources and even our own own lives yes even at calvary baptist church we may not be an imminent threat of death but we need that same mentality but at the same time, as we look at Aristarchus and all the courage he has, let's, let's admit something about the time in which we live, okay? The fact is, God is not calling any of us, myself included. At this time in history, at this place, God is not calling any of us to give up much more than the petty things in our lives. We have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are being called to give up their very lives, to give up their families, to give up their own uh, mental, emotional, and physical well-being. We're being called to maybe, you know, skip an afternoon nap or something. We're being called to give up something that's petty in comparison to what God is calling others to give up. We're called to a ministry of sacrifice. Aristarchus was willing to sacrifice his very life for the sake of the ministry. And we may have, we may have grand illusions, don't you, as the, this, this world gets worse? Don't you have these grand illusions like, oh, one day, you know, I'm going to die for Jesus. I'm going to be put on, the, you know, put on the spot and the whole country is going to be looking at me. And they're going to tell me to you know, stand up for Jesus or to, to bow down to an idol or whatever. And we have these grand illusions of dying for our faith. 
when our freedoms in this country are eventually stripped away. But ask yourself this question, as I have to ask myself, what am I sacrificing now? What am I really sacrificing now? What am I really willing to sacrifice right now for the ministry of Jesus Christ? And then ask yourself, would I be even willing to sacrifice my life for Christ? Is God calling some of you to go overseas and be a missionary? Maybe God is calling you into pastoral ministry. Maybe God is calling you to do something crazy for Jesus. And in the American church, that just doesn't make sense to us. How God could possibly call us to give up our comfort. Because we go to a nice and comfortable church where we're, we are nice and comfortable people. And we bicker and complain if something happens that doesn't make us feel nice and comfortable. The American church largely is not made up of people who will willingly lay down their lives for Jesus. But we can get there. We can get there. Let's start with sacrificing our time, our money, our weekends, our comforts, our ball games, our fantasies, our ambitions now. And God will build in us such a resolute heart. And I say us because I mean us. We got to go on to number four, Aristarchus, courage. Number four, Mark. When I think of Mark, I think of the word completion. And again, I'll tell you what I mean by that. John Mark, that's his full name, he was a travel companion of Paul way back in his first missionary journey, Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 13. Now, if you remember, between Paul and Barnabas, in the middle of that missionary journey, Mark abandoned them. He flaked out. He deserted them in the middle of their ministry. That's Acts chapter 13, verse 13, if you want that account. And his desertion led to a sharp conflict, remember, between Paul and Barnabas. And later on, Barnabas wanted to invite Mark on one of their missionary journeys. And that's where the disagreement happened. Paul refused to take Mark along with them because he saw John Mark's weakness. That's Acts chapter 25. Where he says, now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark. But Paul, Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn, abandoned, deserted them while they were in Pamphylia. And had not gone with them to the work. This was a guy who, who quit in the middle of a job. And there arose such a, sar- a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark and sailed away to Cyprus. And then Paul and Silas go on their way. Now, a guy who proved to be unreliable, that's Mark. But Mark's story doesn't end there. Because where is Mark when Paul wrote this letter? Notice what he says here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark. Sometime in between that first missionary journey and this moment, Mark comes back. Mark is right by his side. Uh, As a matter of fact, we learn uh, in verse 11, he says, Where these three men, they were, uh, at the end, they have been a comfort to me. Here it is. A guy who Paul said, absolutely not. I don't want anything to do with that guy. He abandoned us in the middle of the work and the ministry. Keep him away from the ministry. And it was such a sharp disagreement that he and his best friend in ministry split up and went their different ways. 
And yet here we is, we find Mark being a comfort to Paul. And at the end of Paul's life, as Paul was nearing execution, who did Paul want with him? Here it is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he says, Luke alone with me, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. There's a guy that goes from unreliable to being restored. And now Paul, as he, as he nears execution, says, I want Mark with me. Mark demonstrates one of the great doctrines of the Reformation. You maybe are familiar with it. It's called the perseverance of the saints. It's Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 is where I get the word completion from, where it says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Be careful about defining people based on their past failures or even their current ones. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Anyone who is in Christ is being carried along. They will be completed and so will you. God is making us more like Jesus and Mark was brought back into the gospel work. He was given a second chance And Paul is commanding the Colossian church to welcome him. His past failures were to be kept in the past. Isn't that a word for me and you today? Past failures should be kept in the past. And so Mark isn't just an example of growing in Christ. He's actually an example of Christ growing in us. So not only are we to grow in Christ, but Christ is to grow in and through us. Sanctification is a powerful part of Christian service. Actually, many commentators believe that this Mark is the Mark that would write the Gospel of Mark. Now think about that. This guy who at one moment deserts people in the the middle of the ministry ends up writing one of four of the most important accounts ever written in the history of the world. How God can use, how God does use sinners. That's all he's using. A man who started strong, failed, was built back up. Writing the gospel, God carries us on to completion. And listen, God uses, notice this is all in the context of Christian service. What does this have to do? How is he an example to us of Christian service? What does this have to do with Christian ministry? Well, if you feel like you're in a dead spot in your Christian walk, serve. Serve. Because God uses Christian service to grow the Christian And the growth of a Christian encourages others, keeps us keeping on in the work of the Lord. So when it comes to Christian service, commitment, change, courage, completion, number five, we have justice. And when I think of justice, I think of commitment. And I'm coupling him uh, with the other two guys um, that were before him, uh, Aristarchus, Mark, and then verse 11, Jesus, who was called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Who is Justice? We really don't know. But we do know that he was part of the circumcision and was willing to identify with Paul. And along with Aristarchus and Mark, he was a comfort to Paul. He remained faithful, even though associating with Paul could have been viewed negatively, and he could have kind of been kicked out of certain circles, but it didn't matter. He was willing to stand by Paul no matter what it cost him. He wasn't afraid of what he looked like. He wasn't afraid of what other people would think of him. He was willing to stand there for him and with him, for Christ, for the gospel, all the way through. He had Paul's back. 
and was there to support him. There's one thing that is essential in Christian ministry. It's having each other's back. Standing with each other. Is that great? Uh, I was uh, talking to a, a pastor friend of mine in Georgia. He was a good friend with one of the uh, head football coaches who within the past several years got in trouble and was fired from a, a major university where he was coaching. And, he, and this pastor friend of mine was called up by USA Today and was asked to, because they knew he was friends, and so they wanted to get his take on this, this failure that happened with his head coach and that led to his fire and all these things. And the pastor told the interviewer this. He says, I'm going to tell you one thing. You can quote all of it. You can't cut it up. You can't put it in pieces. You quote the whole thing or you quote nothing. And here's what he said. A friend is somebody who walks in when everybody else is walking out. And in the work of the Lord, we need people like Justice, committed to Christ committed to his church. It's about sticking with people, even at their lowest points. We don't get the sense necessarily that Justice wasn't a task-oriented person. He wasn't like, okay, give me a task to do and I'll do it. No, he was a people person. He was there to encourage and build people up. And that's what we ought to be, faithful friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. He stood by Paul's side. He took a stand for the gospel, even at great cost. And those moments were the sorrows of death. And that word comfort, that's what it means, by the way. The word comfort is used a number of times in our English Bible. But the Greek word for comfort used here uh, literally has this, this, uh, this idea. of It was used on funeral inscriptions. It was used in the, in the context of, of, of people who are deeply sorrowful, like facing the, the very, very realities of death. So as Paul was was in those moments where it was like he was at the funeral, where he was knocking on death's door himself. He was so sorrowful. There was justice there to encourage him. That's Christian commitment. Christian commitment is when we stand for the gospel and we stoop with the sorrowful. That's commitment. That's Christian ministry. That's where ministry happens. That's justice and Mark and Aristarchus. Let's move on to the sixth one. Epaphras, Epaphras is the next guy we meet. Verse 12, and in my name of Epaphras, I think of the word contender. Did you get that sense when you were reading through this? This guy was contending. He's a servant of Christ. He's struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand fully mature. Verse 13, I bear him witness that he works hard for you. We've met Epaphras before. As a matter of fact, you could probably describe Epaphras, he was a layman evangelist, but you could almost describe him as a Paul 2.0. Epaphras was just like Paul. He was concerned, and he had the same struggle for the gospel. He was, like Paul, urgent in his prayers. Like Paul, he had a, he had a great yearning and desire to see people grow in Jesus Christ and to, to mature. He wanted to see Christ formed in them. He wanted the gospel to spread, and he wanted the church to be strengthened. He was a visionary. He was a visionary. He had a vision for how he wanted to see God work in the church. I think we can take a lot from that. Because notice here, it says, what is, what is he praying for? He says, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That's what he's praying for. 
He's agonizing. He's got the hard work. Uh, that word for hard work is, is used uh, to describe the work of Hercules way back in ancient times in ancient Greek. So, we ever, you know, we use the phrase like Herculean effort or Herculean task. You know, it's something that's going to require a lot of effort, a lot of strength. Well, that's, that's, those are the words that Paul is using to describe Epaphras. You know, it's, it's, it's that strong, that, that soul-draining sort of prayer and work for others. You know, it's like we look around at each other and we, it's like, like, this is going to take a lot of work. You know, as we look at each other and we look at ourselves, like, this is going to take, take some contending, real, intense, agonizing, specific prayers for Christ to be formed in us. Epaphras is putting in great effort. He was involved in a work that required the strength of a man's soul, and Epaphras was putting all that strength that was required and all that effort into his prayers. We should be visionaries. I know sometimes we look at the pastor and we want to know what the, past, what the vision the pastor has for the church. I think every single person in here should have a vision for how they want to see God work in individual lives, a biblical vision, a Bible-driven vision, and we get it here. It's that effort, that working, that running, that racing. We're to pursue all throughout Scripture. We're fighting, we're running, we're racing, we're, we're pursuing heavenly things. We're to labor for each other. Now the problem is we don't often labor that way for each other. There's an old, old quote by J. Vernon McGee where he says, The only workout some Christians get is jumping to conclusions and running down others. <laughs> and I would add in that maybe jumping to conclusions But it's calling for a different sort of workout here. It's calling for that sort of prayer. We're, we're, we were longing to see, see each other formed, conformed to the image of Christ. We're, we're contending for each other in Christian ministry. We're not contending against each other, before each other. Let's look at number seven as we look at the last two guys here just briefly. Because these guys, again, not much is known. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. When I think of Luke, number seven, I think of the word contribution. Contribution. Luke was a Gentile who worked as a physician. Now, Paul was, if you know anything about Paul's life, he was in and out of many beatings and shipwrecks and other incidents, so he would actually have need of a full-time doctor. Now, think about that. A guy who heals people and healed several people not healing himself, but enduring the beatings and the shipwrecks and, the be- and, the, and all the other, the other pains that came with his ministry. And Luke was this doctor, and he went along with him. But Luke wasn't just a doctor. He would write the Gospel of Luke, and he would write uh, the book of Acts. He'd even travel, obviously, along with Paul. He was a physician, a historian, and a friend. He used the talents and abilities that God gave him for the ministry. He gave them up. He surrendered them. That's why I use the word contribution. Luke said, hey, I'm a doctor. And instead of pursuing this illustrious career and making money, doctors were very highly esteemed, especially in those days. And so instead of doing that, I'm going to surrender my work to the Lord. And Lord, you use, you use my skills as a doctor. You use my skills as a historian and a writer. You use, you use my friendship that I have with Paul, and use it in whatever way you want. He gave up his personal ambitions and pursued the Lord. That's Christian ministry. Because we all have something to contribute. 
personal selfish ambitions in Christian ministry, they don't go together. If you're looking to get ahead, get a name, or get a fortune, you won't truly be able to serve Christ. But Luke is an example of us of taking what God has enabled him to do and surrendering it to God and say, God, do whatever you want with it to serve others in Christian ministry. We're going to close looking at Demas. Demas. Who is Demas? Now, Demas appears in the New Testament only three times. It's mentioned here uh, in Colossians while Paul was in prison. But I think the word caution, because Demas, his story does not end well. If we were to jump to the end of his story, we'd go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul describes Demas in this way. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. A guy who is with Paul at this moment and committed to him. While Paul is in prison and serving with him, the story ends for Demas with being in love with this present world and deserting Paul. Deserting the ministry. And we get his sin there, don't we? His sin was that he loved this present world. We don't know what it was, but he fell and it looks like he was never reclaimed, unlike Mark. And so Demas is a cautionary tale to us. Because it's easy to get involved in Christian service and secretly pursue the things of this world and use Christian service kind of as this mask. But Demas would wind up saying Christian ministry isn't worth it. The, 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 the lack of security and comfort and the sacrifice, it isn't worth it. And he'd go his own way. And if there's a love for the world, and, it's, and in your heart it's primarily a love for the world, and you're simply using church attendance or church membership or church service just to try to mask up what's going on, it won't last. Your sin will find you out. Your true colors will show. And that's why the appeal is the caution. If you're in Christ, he has offered to you something better than all those things. He's offered to you himself. Demas would eventually forsake Paul and it would have caused great harm to him, the ministry, and to Demas himself. And that's the same that goes for every single Christian that turns from this world. They hurt those closest to them, they hurt their church, and most of all, they hurt themselves. He started out by investing his life but ended up wasting it. Which is it for you? There's a lot of ways you can, there's three ways you can do something with your life. Three ways. You can either spend your life, and you can just spend it on all the entertainment and all the fun and all the, the pleasantries and all the whatever this world has to offer. You can spend your life. You can waste your life. And just be a hold-up curmudgeon and not know what's going on with the world. Or you can invest your life. And that comes through Jesus Christ. When you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow him. When you believe that he died for you and rose again. And you have your sins forgiven, which is God's promise to all who believe. And that is when your life becomes invested in something far greater than what you can spend in the world or waste yourself on in the world. A cautionary tale. What a great way to end the book of Colossians. 
looking at the example of these eight men, seven of them positive, one of them negative. And we ask ourselves, is Jesus, does Jesus truly have first place in my life? Are you like Tychicus, consistent in your ministry to the Lord? Has God truly changed you? Have you been saved? Are you a follower of Jesus? Has he changed you like he did Onesimus? Are you courageous like Aristarchus, willing to sacrifice and give up some of the petty things in life and serve in whatever way God asks? Are you like Mark, who is an example of being carried on to completion and growing in Christ? Are you committed to stand for the gospel with others, with your friends, with your church, like justice was? Do you contend in your prayers for Christ to be formed in the people of this church and in your family like Epaphras did for Colossae? Are you willing, like Luke, to take some skills and abilities you have and say, Lord, do whatever you want with them? Are you maintaining the proper caution, unlike Demas? Are you maintaining the proper caution against worldliness so that you can be fruitful and fully effective in every good work? Is Jesus first place in everything? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for, thanks for these guys. Thanks for these men. Lord, may we, may we follow their positive example. And then may we be warned from Demas in his life. Lord, thank you for this wonderful book to Colossians. May Jesus Christ continue to be supreme in this church, in our hearts, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.